Kia ora everyone, Hugh Bainan here, Sky Sport basketball presenter and commentator. Welcome to The Pod, uh, where we get down and dirty with some of our favourite athletes and their careers. Today it is Dylan Boucher, legendary 100-time Tall Black, a foundation member of the Breakers and went on to become general manager. G'day Dill, how are you? Yeah, g'day Hugh, how are you mate? Not too bad. We're going to have a wee yarn about your career to date um, through the trials and tribulations and the different jerseys you wore and different hats you've worn as well. So we'll start where it all began, Bell Block, Taranaki. Tell me a little bit about Bell Block in the, uh, in the beautiful Taranaki. Yeah, obviously a small town um, just outside of New Plymouth. If you, if you blink as you're going past, you'll probably miss it. Um, but it was, a, it was an awesome childhood. Um, grew up with two older brothers, um, you know, old school, riding bikes to school, uh, you know, battling in the backyard, whatever, you know, just doing kids stuff that kids do in, in the country, riding motorbikes, climbing trees, climbing fences, building playhouses, all the rest of it. Um, but it was fun. You know, Balbot Primary School was uh, where I fell in love with uh, basketball and kind of just followed the journey from there. And it was it was probably my two older brothers that influenced me into the sport because they played it and I kind of was that little turd on the sideline wanting to join in and, and join in my brother's teams. And that was kind of how it all started. I think some people don't know that in the 80s in particular, when you were growing up, Taranaki was a hotbed for basketball, right? It was almost the biggest sport in town. Yeah, absolutely. It was huge. Um, you know, like obviously the rugby team was was strong as well. Uh, so basketball and rugby were the two, I guess, main sports there. And, you know, the games were sold out. Uh, the Friday night games, the NBL games were sold out. And, Again, just being able to, you know, go along to those games. In fact, I was a floor wiper at those games. Um, there's kind of watching the the Benny Anthony's, you know, battling it out and, and Angelo Hill and those type of guys battling it out on the court and, you know, watching them and aspiring to be like them, I guess, from the sidelines. Uh, Benny Anthony, for those that don't know, might know Benny Anthony Jr., BJ Anthony, two sweaty basketballers, two very good basketballers, but that'll be a busy night on the mop uh, when Benny Anthony was in town. Always busy when Benny was playing, and uh, but he was always good. He's always polite, and I, I remember him because you know he's a, he always interacted with the with the floor wipers, probably because he needed our towels, but also just <laughs> his personality. That's the type of guy he is. So basketball over rugby for you? Did you ever did you ever dabble in any other codes when you were young? Yeah, absolutely. I, I pretty much played every sport, um, especially when I was at Bell Block, and you're able to in small towns like that. And um, you know, played every sport. Uh, I loved rugby. I grew up like most New Zealand kids, wanting to be an All Black, and kind of had those aspirations to to pull on the black jersey one day. And I guess slowly, as I got older, um, my love grew for basketball more than rugby, and and that kind of took me that way. I guess um, I was also very skinny as a kid, so. When I moved to Auckland, uh, when I moved to South Auckland in particular, the guys were a little bit bigger than they were in Taranaki and um, playing rugby was, was a bit tougher. Yeah, so you ended up at Papatoetoe High School, is that right? And you continue playing basketball there? Correct, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. Continue with a bit of a shock when we first got there. The, the school did, didn't have any basketball hoops, um, so it was going to a school which had a nice, beautiful gymnasium, but no hoops, so... We organised some fundraisers to get some hoops put up. We got one and then we eventually got two. We, we couldn't even play any home games at our gym at one stage because we only had one hoop in the gym. Um, but we eventually went on and um, ended up winning the uh, Auckland Champs um, in, my, in my year 13 year. So it was pretty cool to, to grow a team and, and go from, um, I was fourth form in those days, a year 10 and um, you know be able to go through and, and build the team and then eventually finish by winning the Auckland Champs. Mind you, it wasn't the wasn't the prem grade we were in the division below the prem grade so it was a uh, um, nevertheless it was still a good achievement 
Did you find yourself, when you look back at those school days, going up against anyone that eventually became your teammate, either in the black jersey or, or any of your other jerseys you wore, club jerseys? Yeah, no, I didn't play because most of the guys that, that played in those teams with me played prems and, and there wasn't mm. many that actually played um, in that second grade down. So I was, um, I guess, one of the few guys from that grade to come up. The only guy was a guy by the name of Charlton Liassi. I ended up playing New Zealand juniors with, but unfortunately he's passed away. So um, he didn't get to continue his career. But no, there wasn't too many guys I battled up against at that age group level. So how do you make that transition from being in not the prems grade of, of schoolboy basketball to the Auckland Rebels or Stars, one of the two names that they were known as the early 90s, mid-90s, 94, you, you sort of made your debut for Auckland? Yeah, that's right. So um, I guess it all started where I, I played reps, so people kind of knew who I was, um, but um, it was my high school coach, actually, Georgie Witteheda, um, actually put my name forward for a New Zealand trial um, and... Um, I don't think I was on the initial list. And I think she rang Tab Baldwin and said, you know, I've got a you know, kid at my school I think you should have a look at. So um, I went along to the trial and Tab Baldwin, obviously being the coach, um, was also the coach of the Auckland team at the time. And um, I trialed and, and made the team. Um, in fact, um, named captain of the team. So it was, I kind of went from, I guess, a relatively unknown. And Tab Baldwin liked what he saw and, and offered me a spot in the Auckland team to, to train with the Auckland team, not, not so much a spot on the team. And then I... Started training with the Auckland team and played in the New Zealand junior team. And uh, yeah, and then eventually um, cracked my way into the, the Auckland team as a full-time player and um, spent a lot of time riding the pine, uh, sitting on the bench and uh, having a good time clapping and cheering and, and then just getting garbage minutes. But um, that was all part of the learning process. And then, you know, eventually got to play more minutes. Uh, the more the more I got on the court, the more I got was able to earn my minutes and, and then eventually uh, became a, a main player for Auckland. 95, 96, 97, 99, and 2000, all with Auckland, five-time New Zealand NBL champion before the turn of the millennium. And that was a pretty handy team you had there, wasn't it? Talk, talk us through who was in that team. Yeah, we've, uh, you know, I've been blessed to play with some, some really good players um, throughout, my, throughout my career and, and a lot of teams I've been on, but that Auckland team was pretty special and you know, had the likes of, you know, Peter Cameron and, and Paul Hennade, um on the team. I mean, great imports and, and Kenny Stone and um, you know we, we every year we had imports that were able to contribute um, and then obviously um, continuing on from that you had the young guys like Lindsay Tate were coming through the process there um, Daryl Cartwright was on those teams Hayden Allen uh, sorry Hayden Smythe um, you know the, the list goes on of Tall Blacks and um, Simon Meseritz Ralph Lattimore uh, Neil Stevens Casey Frank the kind of eventually list goes on. It was a, Casey Frank eventually. So in the in the yeah. um, I guess the two thousands came Casey Frank and Aaron Olson and Mike Homick and um, you know those sort of households that that be so the Auckland has definitely been blessed with some talent and and one thing Tab Baldwin was very good at was identifying talent and um, nurturing it from a young age. So I think at one stage our Auckland team was all under twenty three bar at imports at one stage. So wow. uh, it was a pretty young team, and he kind of developed us all the way through, and, and I guess handpicked from the New Zealand juniors um, and brought them into the Auckland squad. It's about this time we should start talking about your hair, uh, because those who have seen <laughs> the, uh, the the pictures or the videos of a young Dylan Boucher playing for Auckland, or even when you start, started your breakers career and your Tall Blacks career, a vast array of uh, follicle inventions going up there. At one point, David Beckham, the sweetback, a ponytail even, always some sort of frosted tips. Uh, when did you start experimenting uh, follically, mate? 
Um, I think it started, I can't remember exactly what year. I think, um, you know, I've had, like you say, every haircut. I always enjoyed long hair, but it's not very practical when you're a basketball player. Um, not just the um, maintaining it like shampoo and conditioner, but the the um, tying it back and getting in your eyes and wearing headbands and mm-hmm. experimented with many headbands, as you know. Um, <laughs> but I think it all started when we had a friend who was a hairdresser um, and obviously you know, being able to experiment with hair was a lot cheaper than going to a proper hairdresser. Mm-hmm. So, well, she was a proper hairdresser, but did it from home and, and, and gave good deals. And I think that was probably where it all started. And, uh, yeah, I think I think it was probably a lot of it was influenced by my wife Nikki. Um, she liked me with blonde hair, so um, when we first met, I had blonde hair, and as I got older, it turned brown, and now it's grey. Um, so <laughs> it's just the, the the evolution of growing up, I guess. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, we laugh about your hair, but it kind of led to this erroneous show pony kind of tag that you got, and it kind of affected your career a little bit, right? Because you were part of that that really good Auckland team. Uh, so many fantastic tall blacks that you name, but they were all in the tall blacks a fair bit of time before you. You kind of ro- rode out, kept missing out on the squad until 2001, uh, where you already had won five championships. Talk, talk us through why uh, why the tall blacks debut came a little late. Yeah, it was it was obviously a frustrating time for me because I felt like I was playing good basketball, and you know, don't get me wrong, there's some good players that were picked in front of me in the team, and, and you know, I'd go along to the trials and, and trial, and like everyone, you know, anytime you finish a trial, you know when you you've done well and I felt like mm. I'd you know I'd perform well but I never seemed to be able to crack that um that tall black squad and I knew I was really close and so that's why I guess what kept me going and the perseverance that was able to drive me was that I knew I was right on the cusp and I knew um, I had a guy by the name of Glenn Denham um in front of me and um Glenn Denham was uh, uh a steward of the tall blacks. I think he'd, he played 15 years and he was captain for most of those years mm-hmm. so he was kind of the, the anchor of the team and um, under the Keith Meir, um, you know, era. And certainly when um, Glenn retired, as uh, when Keith Meir retired after the 2000 Olympics, there was actually quite a few guys, older statesmen in the team, um, that ended up stepping down from international basketball. And I guess it opened the door um, for guys to be able to step in. And I was obviously fortunate enough to be one of those guys to step in. And um, for me, it was probably the, the changing coach um, with Tab Baldwin then taking over again as the tall black coach. And um, obviously, I played for him for many years with Auckland and New Zealand juniors, and he had a lot of confidence in my game, and you know, been able to trust me on the on the floor at certain times. And I also think, you know, part of my the way I played the game um, probably wasn't people didn't think it was conducive to to international basketball. You know, they probably thought that you needed someone to be able to knock down open shots and do the things that um, traditional players do. And I guess I didn't fit into that traditional player box. I didn't come off screens and shoot the ball and. You know, I did reverse layups rather than normal layups because I wasn't athletic enough to get my shot off on bigger guys. And, you know, so, you know, there was things like that. And I, I think that was where the show pony tag um, kind of got thrown at me was that I, I, I never did conventional stuff on a basketball court. I always made stuff probably look more difficult than what it should have been. But it certainly wasn't from me wanting to show off. It was more a case of I understood my limitations as a player and, and doing things the hard way were the easy way for me. I, I tried to hone my skills and doing the hard things well. Um, and that's, I guess, uh, you get labelled with a label. And, and for me, it was um, certainly far from the truth, I can tell you that, because there's no show pony at all in my game. 
Um, New Zealand basketball, as most people know, changed about 19 years ago uh, in 2002 when you guys, the Tall Blacks, came fourth at the World Cup. Pedro Cameron being named to the All-Star Five with the uh, four NBA superstars, including Yao Ming and um, Manu Ginobili, Pedro Stajakovic, Dirk Nowitzki. Um, rarefied air for the Tall Blacks in 2002. You were part of that. You're a big part of that. And in 2001, qualifying as well. Those two years... Just how much do you think they've shaped New Zealand basketball uh, over the last two decades? Oh, massively. I think that, um, you know, that those two campaigns um, kind of put basketball on the map in this country. Um, I mean, the breakers eventuated out of that, that tournament. Um, you know, I think there was a lot of, you know, the young guys that are the stars now were, were watching, you know, from their living room, watching that and, and being inspired to play basketball. And, you know, for us, we knew that team. We knew the team had, was very strong. Uh, we knew the team had had a lot of chemistry, been together for a long time. The culture was great within that team. It was a bunch of guys with really high basketball IQ that understood their roles extremely well. Um, Tab Baldwin was obviously a fantastic coach as well. Um, so we, we had confidence in that group. Um, and the coaches, Tab Baldwin and Nenad Vucinic, uh, gave us a lot of confidence in that, in that group. And uh, we went to that tournament believing we could actually shake it up um, we probably didn't realize how good we could actually do, um, but we were there to, to throw some throw some different looks at people and, and cause some upsets throughout the tournament, which we did. And you were leading Yugoslavia at halftime in the semi-final. How often over the last 19 years have you thought back to, oh man, imagine if we had gone, if we held on. I mean, they're a fantastic team, eventual champions, a whole bunch of FIBA Hall of Famers in that team and NBA players. So easier said than done 19 years later. But how often do you guys talk about that? Or do you ever reminisce about the 2002 uh, with the with your teammates? We've got a little little group chat going on, um, but we don't. that game doesn't actually get brought up, funnily enough. You know, it's, <laughs> it's one of those things that, you know, I think, guys, um, we all know that the one that got away, I mean, we would have been playing for a gold medal if we'd won that game, and we certainly threw everything at them in the first half. They adjusted at halftime um, and really um, took it to us inside. I just remember there, they were huge and a lot bigger than us, a lot stronger on the inside, and they really took it to us and offensive rebounds and stuff in the second half, which really hurt us. And, and we didn't do a good job keeping them off the glass. And it's like you say, it's easier said than done. Um, so that was, yeah, again, definitely the one that got away. And that was probably the one game in the tournament or the half in the tournament that we look back on and wish we'd done better. And if we had we done better, it could have changed the outcome, not only for um, the result of the tournament, but also, you know, would have even springboarded basketball even more in this country. Well, like you say, the breakers came from that. You were a foundation member. Was that a no-brainer? You've been in the New Zealand NBL. Did you have to go and trial for the breakers, or was it just uh, you got a tap on the shoulder from Frank and Jeff, uh, the you know the founders and the original coaches? How did that come about? Yeah, it was uh, again like a lot of my stories. I guess um, Jeff Green was um, the coach of the the Waikato team um, that I actually had gone to play for that year. So Jeff knew me very well. He had recruited me heavily for for the years previously from Auckland and, and I never ended up going there and I eventually did um, uh, for a couple of years. But yeah, it was, it was all kind of, um, you know, the New Zealand basketball community was pretty clear who the players were um, and who the players they wanted and they went and shoulder tapped and signed players. And, um, you know, obviously Peter Cameron was the first guy and I think Bill Jones then myself. And then I think Paul Hennaday was, was there as well. So it was, you know, kind of a, a quartet of, of New Zealand players and then obviously then the likes of your polder Winitanas and then we started looking at development players and you know going with ultra talented guys like Lindsay Tate and 
and Mika Vakona. Um, you know, so there was a good list. And then there was obviously a, a trio of Australians that we brought into that team as well. So it was trying to get that balance right. We needed guys with experience in the league as well as talented New Zealanders to be able to round out the roster. Uh, and don't forget the first ever import of the breakers, your friend of mine, Casey Frank, and Sky Absolutely. Sports, Sky Sports' very own Casey Frank. And that first ever breakers game at the North Shore Event Centre, now called Event Finder Stadium, uh, against Adelaide, you guys were up big, correct me if I'm wrong, up big and they nearly came back, but you, you managed to hold on? Yeah, that's right. That's exactly what happened. We, in fact, we scored 44 points in the first quarter and that's a record wow. um, on its own, but it's also a record for a first game, obviously. And I'm pretty sure in that game, all 12 players scored. Um, so very rarely you ever play 12 players, but Jeff mm. Green had this push the ball and rotate players policy and 12 players had scored in that game and, and Casey Frank had a blinder in that game too. He was, he was outstanding in that game and, and you know, he was a human highlight uh, back in those yeah. days. Um, so yeah, he was, he was a fantastic import, but unfortunately for him, uh, like, uh, like when the team's not, not, not performing, the first people they look at is the imports. Um, and then out comes the, the chopping block. Well, it's a great story he likes to tell about how he was, he, there's one play and I'm sure we'll find the highlights and put it over this part of the chat where he got the rebound and went coast to coast with two round the back moves to get past defenders and then threw it down for a dunk. And that one play of the year in the breakers first year, despite him being fired. I think it was five, right on the halftime buzzer. Yeah. Despite him being fired five games later or whatever it was, 10 games later, uh, because you had that win. And then the losses kind of piled up. And that was kind of the story for the breakers for the first four years. Now you've been in that general manager, or even longer, now you've been in that general manager role as well. What went wrong? Well, why, why was it so hard for the breakers to get out the starting blocks? Yeah, we kind of, I guess we didn't understand the league and we understand the, the stresses and the, and the trials and tribulations of traveling and, and backing up and injuries. And it's a long season and it's a lot of, and you've got to fit training and scouting and video and, and, strength and conditioning and nutrition and you know it's all the things that you take as normal now um but back then a lot of us hadn't been professional basketball players so none of us really knew what what to expect so we as much as we had played semi-professional in new zealand this was a step up and mm. the australians do a great job of scouting you and they put you in uncomfortable positions and we just you know the first game we took everyone by surprise because no one really scouted us because they didn't know anything about they could only see because we hadn't played a lot of preseason games if any i don't recall and um, so we kind of caught everyone by surprise. But after game one, everyone kind of worked out. We were, we were a running team. And if you shut that down, then our half-court offense wasn't as strong. So um, that's where we kind of spluttered. And that's how it was for years. And that's why we saw coach changes, player personnel changing on the regular for that four-year period was just trying to work out exactly what balance the team needed of scorers versus facilitators versus star imports and things like that. So it was... You look back at that first year team, it was a talented team. Like there's, there's, there's as good as any team that the breakers, you know, have. So mm. it wasn't like there was anything wrong with the personnel. It was just, I guess, maybe getting the balance right and things like that. So, um, and, and having a, having a game plan, having a really clear game plan of where you're going with it and being able to adapt as you, as you go. You did something that not many players do, which is leave under a coach and then come back under the same coach. Cause <laughs> some younger breakers fans you know might not know that you left the breakers in was it oh five the oh five oh six season you went to of all places the dirty old perth wildcats um new zealand basketball <laughs> legend wearing that filthy red and yellow um no perth are a great franchise but what did that do for you as a as a bloke and as a player and moving away from the somewhere you spent your whole life playing basketball and to the to the wild west as they call it of australian basketball 
Yeah, nearly, it nearly killed me to be honest. That the you know the or killed my career, not killed me, killed my career. Um, when the breakers uh, essentially we were like we just talked about was struggling those two years, and they had to do some had to do some cleaning out. And unfortunately, I was one of the guys that that was involved in the clean out. And um, you know, I, I truly believe that it was I was very outspoken about what we needed to do as a club to move forward. And unfortunately, I fell on my own sword because I was the one of the ones that they new coach coming in didn't want a guy who was outspoken on the team. So. Um, this was Andre Lamanis, just for those wondering. This was Andre, Andre Lamanis. Start of Andre Lamanis's tenure, which obviously we'll get to, turned out to be pretty good. But anyway, continue. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so um, and Andre and I had this conversation, you know, about you know that I was outspoken about what needed to happen and, and things like that. So um, and eventually they recruited um, other players in my position and, and left me um, kind of with no job and and right at the time. And fun, funnily enough, the Perth Wildcats were really the only team with a with a spot on their team. So I was kind of mm. left with no other options other than to go to Perth. Um, and, you know, I'd had bad history with Perth um, in the previous season where I'd got into an altercation with one of their players. So I was kind of going, oh, what's it going to be the environment of Perth after all the fans are probably not liking me? And, you know, and, and I got there. And, and to the credit of the Red Army, they they welcomed me with open arms and, you know, I became, became a favourite of theirs. And, you know, they loved, loved me and loved the way I played. And, um, that all lasted until I, the next season, then moved on to Brisbane, and then the same fans became the biggest enemies of me again. Um, <laughs> and you got to love the loyalty of club. And it was the, the thing that probably hurt me the most when I went to Perth is when I came back to play the Breakers. You know, I copped it from the crowd for playing for mm. the opposition team, and you know, and, and fair enough, they support their fans. But some of the some of the fans, the things they were saying were were not very nice to me. And I was kind of like, man, I poured my heart and soul in, out to this club when it, you know, to get it going and. The club got rid of me. I didn't leave, you know, but you can't explain any of that to fans. They just see yeah. you were in a different color. And, you know, and that's really tough for an athlete to deal with. And then your family's got to sit in the crowd and hear people yelling out stuff about you. And, you know, that that's really hard for them to swallow. And, and you know, it was what was pleasing for me is we won all the games when I came back to New Zealand and <laughs> I had extra motivation to play well, obviously, with people saying stuff like that. So, um, no, it was, I mean, it was, a, it was a pivotal moment in my career. I, I learned off other franchises I learned from, you know, great professionals and the guys like Tony Ronaldson. And then later on when I went to Brisbane with CJ Bruton and, and Sam mm. McKinnon and guys like that and Paul Rogers in Perth, and, you know, I learned a lot uh, from those kind of senior guys and, and how to, how to lead a team and, and what is, what is, you know, necessary for a team to be successful. And sometimes you can't just be the nice guy as a captain or as a leader, you have to call a spade a spade and you have to tell people exactly, you know, what you think. And Sometimes you're, you're not going to be liked for it, but it's one of those things that makes the uh, machine move faster and better. And, and then eventually people realize that you're doing it for the greater good of the team. And then they get over the little, um, you know, maybe thing you've said to them and, and realize what you're trying to say and, and become better because of it. All while this is happening, you're moving way around, around the AMBL, playing your trade. You also were barely missing a Tall Blacks game. You know, because you had that late start to your international tenure in 2001, you played 100 games, 100 tests from 01 uh, to 2008, it was when you retired, 2007 or 8 when it was when you retired. 2007, yep. yeah, before the, uh, when uh, New Zealand failed to qualify for the Beijing Olympics. So how, I mean, all with children, you know, married with children as well, you, you must have been flat out because you were still playing in the New Zealand NBL. So you were going... You know, New Zealand NBL from March to June, straight into Tall Blacks for the winter, wherever you were sent going around the world. Because remember, the Tall Blacks don't really play home games now, let alone uh, in the mid-2000s, and then into an Australian season, and then you do it all again. So how did you cope with that, both from a family point of view and a physical point of view? 
Yeah, it's, um, you know, for me, I've been incredibly lucky. Um, one is to have an understanding wife and understanding family that, that lets me put, you know, selfishly put myself first and, and my sport first um, in, in a lot of cases. And, um, you know, for me, she understood that, you know, it was a goal, it was a dream. And, and she went through all the heartache, you know, we've been together since we were 17. And, you know, she's seen my career go from, you know, um, you know, from New Zealand trialist and junior trialist to, to first making the Auckland team right through to now. So, you know, like she's very understanding, um, supports my dreams and goals. And I'm lucky to have, you know, she would say to me, it wasn't always, oh, go, go and have a good time. It wasn't always that, that uh, green light, mm. but it was certainly yeah. not, there was never a red light there. Um, and for me, it was always, I'm very fortunate to have that. And then the second part of that is, you know, I've been very lucky with injuries. I haven't, haven't had a lot of major injuries. I think I had, I've had a bone graft under my foot, um, which is my only major injury I've had and um, even I wasn't super athletic before that but certainly didn't help my athleticism after it and having a bit of bone from your hip put into your foot doesn't help your athleticism at all and that happened when I was about 21 um, and since then I've been very very lucky touch wood um, to still you know run around with not too many injuries and um, that's that's probably been why I was able to play all year round and the one downside of that, which I had, I if I could do it all again, I would I would certainly find some time somewhere to have a break because you just don't get a chance to improve. You're constantly mm -hmm. going, and you're fit, and you're super fit, and you're super, you know, game ready. But you just don't get a chance for an off season where you can go and work on your shot, or work on your ball handling, or work on whatever your weaknesses are, and or getting stronger and things. So you carry niggly injuries with you for years and years. And you know, I've got shoulders that are just shot now just because I've gone through playing and had cortisone injections in them and to mm. carry on playing so I didn't have to miss games and things like that. And they just they just will never be the same unless I go and have surgery on them. And that's just, you know, part of the price you pay. And it, I mean, it wasn't anyone forcing me. It was me wanting to do it. I never liked going to the physio because I never wanted bad news. So I'd just tell them I'm <laughs> sweet and go to the hotel room and, you know, sit on my bed and, and ice my ice my injuries from there and not, not worry too much about the physio. And if I went to the physio, it was usually to just get something to, tape something back together or hold it a bit stronger or something like that and and funnily enough my breakers career Mika Vakona was my roommate as well so we would always talk about not wanting to go to the physio and you know he's one of the one of the toughest guys in basketball and you know he'll play with his leg falling off uh yeah so I, was, yeah. I, I had nothing to complain about yeah well let's get <clears throat> before we get to that the magical breakers you know uh four championships in five seasons or whatever it was a three-peat for you anyway um was there a point where you're in Perth or Brisbane where you thought you'd never be a breaker again or where you thought you know just just ride out in Australia as yeah. long as I can or was it always in your head you wanted to come home it was always in my head I wanted to come home I never thought it would be possible to be fair I thought that was a you know I thought I would spend the rest of my career in Australia I thought what team would want a guy back that they've got rid of and um, you know, I always, you know, Nikki and the kids always wanted to be at home and, you know, would always come home for the New Zealand NBL season. So we'd spend six months at home and kind of spend six months away. And usually I'd do a, a month at the end of the season, a month at the beginning of the season on my own. So it was always tough living away from the family. Mm -hmm. uh, but that was always for schooling and things like that. But um, no, I mean, I was, I was fortunate enough um, that when the Breakers wanted to recruit CJ Bruton, um, they were, you know, he openly said, he was my teammate in Brisbane. I openly said, well, one of your best players is playing for Brisbane. Why don't you um, recruit him? And if you recruit him, then I'll come. Um, and so I remember CJ ringing me and telling me that. And CJ's really hard to understand on the phone at the best of times. <laughs> and so he kind of told me this. And I got off the phone and I said to Nikki, oh, like, CJ just told me he told the breakers that he wouldn't come unless I was there. 
And I said, well, at least I think that's what he was saying. And then sure <laughs> enough, Richard Clark called on the phone, you know, hours later, um, kind of talking about wanting to bring me back to the, to the club. And um, I honestly was, was about before that all happened, I was about to sign a new three-year deal in Brisbane. So I probably, you know, um, had the franchise not fallen over in Brisbane, I probably would still be in Brisbane to this day. Um, so kind of got lucky that the franchise fell over and, and the breakers came knocking um, or looking for CJ and, and found a package deal with both CJ and myself. And um, I remember having a conversation with Andre Lamanis about me coming back and would I hold anything against them? And I just said, look, you know, I'm not the, not the troublemaker you think I am. Um, and then the, the most, the best thing for me was Andre coming up to me after our first championship and kind of, you know, we, we gave each other a look like, yeah, we, you know, we put our differences aside and which, which weren't actually, there was no differences at all. He just had to, had to make a call on what players he needed on his team. Mm. And, you know, we agreed and he said, I made the right decision bringing you home. Um, and that was all I needed to hear as a player, you know, that the, the coach, you know, has made a good move. And, and then obviously we won three championships in a row with that, with that squad. So it was a, it was a great move coming back. Um, from a team building point of view, that the core of that breakers team, the, the three-peat team was nigh on perfect. You know, you had various points, of course, but you had world-class shooters in CJ uh, and Kirk Penny. And I mean world-class shooters, not just Australian NBL-class shooters, but Olympic-class shooters, you know. Um, and then you had Kevin Braswell, Sergio Jackson, two of the most enigmatic point guards the league has ever seen, doing the hard yakka, you and Mecca Vakona, two guys that everyone hates if they're not on your team but adores when they are on your team. Um, a bit of height and the likes of Chief and, and Gary Wilkinson and then the young guns of Tom Abercrombie as well. I don't think I've ever seen a more perfect team uh, in the league than the, the Breakers 3 Pete in the last 15 years or so. Yeah, it was certainly a well-balanced team and everybody, again, talking like that 2002 team, everyone knew their role, everyone understood their role, everyone accepted their role, um, you know, right down to the guys who were getting five minutes a game, um, you know, like Micker and myself, there were, games where he would play 30 minutes and I would play 10, you know, and mm. then there were games where, you know, I would play 30 minutes and he'd play 10 because he was in foul trouble, but we both accepted it. We were roommates. We would get in the room and laugh about it. And, you know, I remember, you know, he would be in foul trouble. And as I'd go on, Andre would say to me, you can't foul Dylan. We need you out there, you know, and I'd be conservative, which for me, conservative is still reaching a hell of a lot. Uh, but, you know, we just couldn't have two guys in foul trouble. But, you know, then we had the luxury of having, you know, guys like, Gary Wilkinson could step in and, and play the four spot. Um, Tom Abercrombie and those and Leon Henry, you know, we had guys mm. that could step in and play those those spots for us. And that team, we kind of had many guys that could play multiple positions. There were times where Micker and I would play a little bit of, uh, you know, three man and, you know, Tom would come up into the four spot or we would load big. And, you know, so we played many different lineups and um, it was a very, very balanced team. And, and again, the culture was so good. You talk about yeah. culture within teams. That group had a great culture um, and, and it was led by the playing group. Um, the, the coaching staff it was pretty easy for them because we had good leaders in the locker room and we sorted stuff ourselves that didn't need to get to the management level or coach level because it was normally sorted by the players. Yeah, it was. Um, it must have been for you guys who have been there from the start. And there was a few of you. You know, Mecca, although young, was a foundation breaker as well. And um, Paulie, of course, who retired after the first championship, to look back when you won those to what it was like, you know, and the, the shift in professionalism as well as the shift in quality and the shift in results must have been mind-blowing for you guys at the time. Yeah, it's crazy. The, the, like you talk about the culture and, um, you know, within the group, and understanding what it takes to win and, and you know, how much professionalism, more 
professionalism we had um, in the three-peat era compared to when we first started was, was night and day. And, you know, I think, you know, New Zealand basketball has come on leaps and bounds and, and professionalism and basketball, not even at the professional level, even, you know, going right down to high school level now, people have a pretty good understanding of what it takes to get things done. You retired at the end of the three-peat deal and your jersey went straight up in the rafters alongside Paul Lees, Paulie Hinnade, that is, uh, and CJ Bruton. What was it like for you uh, when your jersey was, was raised? And what was it like now when you still see it hanging there in Spark Arena and at, and at the Breakers training facility? Yeah, it's, uh, it's one of the, I guess, most proudest moments I've had throughout my career is being able to have my jersey hanging from the rafters and like I say, I really took pride in, in playing for the Breakers and, and, you know, really poured my heart and soul into every game um, on and off the court. You know, I tried to make the brand a stronger brand when I was a player um, and then obviously moving into the, the office after playing as well. So, you know, the club still has a dear um, place in my heart and obviously, you know, to have your jersey retired and, and you know, honoured in front of the fans and, and, and other player, future players is, is pretty special and um, that was a really cool moment for me. Now, to a man... Every single person I've ever spoken to who played with you says Dylan Boucher would be a fantastic coach. And you dabbled. You dabbled. You're assistant coach of the Tall Blacks briefly. Um, but then you made the decision to go the administrative way. Why was that? Because the people were pulling you towards coaching, right? Yeah, and I think people, um, they were. And I think people were worried that if I didn't go into coaching immediately that I may never go into coaching. And um, I guess one of my strengths as a player is my basketball IQ, uh, my understanding of the game, uh, my creativity within a game, uh, and understanding, you know, scouting players and things like that. So the automatic thing would be to go into a coaching uh, perspective. And I guess for me, you know, and, and this is in all honesty, I'd seen a lot of coaches um, that I admired greatly as coaches had, had failed relationships um, and for me it was you know they sacrificed their relationships for being the greatest coaches they could be and mm -hmm. you know to be a coach you do spend a lot of hours in front of video and I know my short time as assistant coach on the national team um, you know I spent hours and hours you know till early hours of the morning coding video you know during you know world cup campaigns and leading into them so you know it's it's really tough going um, and it's a lot of work um, not that I'm afraid of hard work it just means you have to sacrifice something and you know, I'd already sacrificed a huge amount for myself as a player um, to be able to fill that role as a player. To go straight into the coaching side for me was was you know going to be detrimental to my to my family relationship, um, and I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to sacrifice my family for my role for my job, and so um, you know, as much as I wanted to be a coach, I knew I had a um, I knew I had a talent that was able to be able to stand in front of people and and talk to people and be able to sell a brand that I knew was a brand that I loved and being the breakers. And I knew when I started going at the office side, I knew selling the breakers for me was easy because it was a brand I believed in. It was a brand that, you know, I could sell to Eskimos, you know, um, because I, it was something that I was passionate about. And, you know, even though I had no sales technique or anything like that, I hadn't been trained in sales. I knew that I could sell it because it's what I believed in. And I knew that people would hear the belief in my voice of, of um, what I believed in. And, and that's kind of where it all started for me off the court. And that's where I started that journey. And then that took me into that general manager role. And, and again, it was, um, I was really lucky. And then timing was great. You know, Richard Clark left at a time where I probably wasn't ready to be general manager, um, but I put my hand up anyway and interviewed for the role and, and got it. I remember presenting to Paul and Liz Blackwell and, and Ant Carter um, on the board um, day before Christmas and at Pack and Save and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, showed my presentation and they, they liked my presentation and they liked the direction I wanted to take the club. And 
wanted to support me and, and help me grow in that role and very grateful for that. Um, that's, I guess, helped build me to the person I am today. What was it like? Because some of the players you play with, let's take, for example, Mika Vukona, who was your roommate, um, you know, and then all of a sudden you were the general manager. And in fact, eventually you had to deliver the news to Mika one day that the breakers weren't re-signing him. So what was that switch like um, being suddenly the boss of the likes of Mika Vukona and Tom Abercrombie, guys you played with? Awful, awful. That's the, uh, you know, you have to separate yourself, unfortunately. So I started, you know, I had to pull back from my social gatherings with those guys. And, you know, I, I could no longer be one of the boys. I was now management. I was front of the bus guy, not back of the bus guy. So it was, you have to separate yourself because there's a very fine line where it comes to those times, like you talked about, where you've got to have hard conversations with them. And, hmm. you know, poorly as well. Um, and, you know, his time, you know, with the breakers when, you know, he stepped aside from his role. I was in those conversations and Micah and Alex Ledger and, you know, the, the list goes on and, and, you know, and I hated it, hated every moment of it. I hated making decisions that were, that were, you know, maybe necess necessary for the club, but certainly not. They didn't feel good for me internally. And um, that was, you know, that was something I didn't really like in the role. Um, you know, I loved, I loved the role, uh, but within every role, there's jobs that you don't like doing. And that was certainly one of them. Were those things things that you found eventually with time uh, were understood by both parties? And, it, and you know, you're all, you know, after you catch up after a couple of years and be like, you know, you understand why I had to do that or whatever. Is, is that that kind of thing? Yeah, definitely, definitely. But at the time it hurts, you know, like especially like like my time with the, when my time with the breakers was, um, you know, when Andre said he didn't want me, you know, it's hard to like a person that's taken a job away from you and made you move your family to Australia. It's hard, yeah. you know, and you try and separate business with friendships, but at you know, the end of the day, it's going to be strained. It's like, you know, it's, it's kind of one of those things where you, um, you know, you want it to be like, from my side, I was like, Oh, if only they could see it's just a business decision, but you know, with every decision that impacts your family, it's going to, it's going to take its toll on you. And so it's going to impact friendships and things like that. And, you know, that was, you know, part of, you know, part of me not being at the breakers is, is because of that. Those are the really hard things that I found really hard that, you know, I was having to sacrifice friendships for my job and that's something I never wanted to do. You know, I never want to have to do. Um, but in those roles, you have to be, you have to have that cutthroat. And I think maybe that's why I was too early to go into a general manager role. You almost need to have no friendships with the players and it has to be purely business. And when you pulled the plug on your general manager tenure with the breakers, what was behind that? Because that was at the start of a, I made a lot of headlines, of course, and it was the start of a fairly tumultuous season for the breakers. Yeah, absolutely. It was, um, you know, like for me, the decision was was pretty easy. I started, I started um, not only like we talked about with the players, but I started um, not, I don't want to say not enjoying the role, but it certainly wasn't, um, you know, as enjoyable as what I wanted. And, you know, for me, I was starting to feel stale. I feel, felt like things were kind of, it was Groundhog Day. It was, you know, in sport management, it's really tough. And anyone will speak, not just in breakers, but in any team and in and, and any sport in New Zealand, you know, it's tough going. It's, you know, it's a lot of work and it's a it's a lot of um, lot of hours and a lot of times it's you know you'll bust your gut and then you'll finish you know making a loss at the end of the year and you'll feel like well, was it even worth it so mm. for me it was starting to get I needed something fresh I needed a fresh challenge and um, you know I, I I kind of made the decision to leave um, knowing that I had nothing but knowing that that eventually you know people that had been around me and people that knew me would know my worth and, and understand that if I was available that opportunities may come and that's exactly what happened and you know, I'm fortunate enough now to do, you know, to do several, several different roles, um, but it's roles that I choose to do. And, and if I, 
you know, I control my own hours now and, and you know, and I contract to people. And although it's very risky for my family, it certainly allowed me to A, spend more time with family, but also B, make decisions that are the best for me and, and hopefully keep friendships intact on the way. Well, we know you're involved as well with, with the Auckland Huskies. And I just think it's how fantastic it is to look back at your era. That, let's just take that 2002 Tall Blacks era and just see how many of those guys who contributed so much to New Zealand basketball on the court back then, like we said, in a, in a game-changing moment for the sport in New Zealand, uh, are still doing that off the court now. You know, Paulie Henade put in more than his time uh, as head coach of the Tall Blacks. Perry Cameron has been involved with the Tall Blacks for 30 years, and now he's, he gets his chance as head coach. Uh, you've been general manager of the Breakers and still involved with the Huskies and on the board of the New Zealand NBL. Um, you know, Paulie coaching in Japan. Judd Flavel has been in and out of Tall Blacks camps and still is and is over in Southeast Melbourne. You guys, uh, just the backbone of the game, it seems to me, that era... Um, it must fill you with pride to see how much you've all, um, you know, given to the game and still continue to contribute. Yeah, you missed a couple out there. Sean Mark's yeah. been the Brooklyn Nets to you. I've heard <laughs> of him. I've heard of him. Don't, don't worry about <laughs> Yeah, Polder Winnie-Tanner coaching over in the States as well. You know, the list goes on of that group. And that's why I talk about that group was a really high basketball IQ group. And it's great to see that they're all playing their trades, still involved in the, mm. in the game and some on an administration level, but mostly in the coaching level. And, you know, that's those those guys grew up passionate about basketball. It wasn't about the money when we grew up. It was about we loved the game and we wanted to help the game grow and improve. And and they're still trying to do that to this day. So that's it's pretty special to see that group and um, be able to you know talk to them all on different levels and and be able to see what they're all doing still within the sport. And don't forget that you were, I believe, the one who started to steer Casey Frank to commentary. He, uh, That's right. he says you were the one, it was your idea to tell him to get in touch with Sky and put his hand up to be a commentator. That's right. And that was, what, 10 years ago or something now? So it's, uh, and he made it very clear that when I, when I retired from playing, that don't come trying to take his job back either. So he's made that very, very clear. <laughs> he tells that times. to everyone who's retiring. <laughs> yeah. He tells that to everyone right. who retires. Hey, uh, Dylan, appreciate your time. Thanks for telling us uh, your story. It's fascinating. And uh, I look forward to see uh, what's next because I know it's not over. Absolutely. Thanks, you. Appreciate your time.